So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Maybe you are like me because I did not believe in the gospel the first time I heard it. I grew up in a Christian home. Um, I heard the gospel many times in that context. Um, my parents took me to church regularly. Um, in fact, on Sundays, it was not unusual for us to be at three different churches. Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, just because of where we were living at that point in time in Israel and in Germany. I spent time with my parents' Christian friends. Christians spent a lot of time with Christians. Christian families spent a lot of time with Christian families. I watched my parents minister God's word to many people, in particular while we were in Germany, to about 40 or so GIs that were gathered there at the army base. My parents reached out to them and, and ministered the gospel. Um, but all that time, although I heard the gospel, I did not respond to the gospel when I heard it. Our family had family devotions, probably a lot like some of your families, and I heard the gospel during those times too but I did not respond to the gospel in faith during those times. I heard it many times, but it wasn't until I was 16 years old when I was sitting in a chapel at a Christian school that all the world kind of came together and it was very, very clear to me that God was convicting me of my sin and that I needed to put my faith and trust in him. You see, I was one of those people that it took a little bit more time for the gospel to set in place in my heart. I remember being convicted on many occasions, but I remember also pushing aside that conviction, saying, I don't want to listen to that. I have a life I want to live. I have things I want to do. And just as a young person, still thinking, you know, I don't know that I want to have anything to do with this church stuff. So I heard the gospel many times and in many different ways from many different people, but I didn't believe it the first time I heard it. When it comes to people's conversion experiences or conversion stories, the reality is for some, it takes moments. They just hear the gospel for the first time. You've probably heard of conversions like that where they just heard it for the first time and, and, and just God captivates them totally and completely in that first gospel encounter. But that probably is not the norm of our experience here. 
probably the experience that is more the norm in here is that it took a little period of time, maybe a month, maybe a few months. As God's gospel is the truth of the fact that, that we are separated from him and that Jesus Christ was the satisfaction to bring sinful man to a holy God by, by virtue of his death on the cross and ultimately being glorified through his, his resurrection and ascension. But for, for others, it takes years. It takes years of struggling, years of hearing the gospel, years of, of arguing and wrestling and, and being confused and ultimately along the way recognizing that they have a deep-rooted need to be cleansed and that cleansing can only come through the gospel. And so in the passage that we have read here, the passage that is before us, we are faced with the same struggle. And it comes in the form of a word from John the writer and a statement from uh, Jesus' lips that are revealed in this passage. John tells us in verse 12, um, it says this, so he said to them again, you say, okay, isn't that just a word that just kind of is connecting and moving things along in the story? Yes, it is. You'll find that also in verse 1 of chapter 8, and you'll find it in other places. But there's something about this particular passage of Scripture that, that seems to strike me, at least, that there is something significant about this word. In fact, if you go to um, verse 25, you'll notice what Jesus says to uh, the Jews who are asking him, when they say, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. What does that sound like? That he has been consistently, constantly telling them and reminding them of the same realities about who he is from the beginning. There's a sense of, of, of struggle and tension and frustration that is going on in this passage that we read. It's kind of like the passage that we studied back in John chapter 2 in verses 23 through 25. I, I came to this passage thinking along those lines that, that I remember when, we, when I studied that passage, it was so difficult for me because I was really contemplating what is Jesus saying here? And if you remember, that's the passage where many people believed in all the signs that Jesus was doing, but, but Jesus knew what was going on in their heart. And he knew that what was going on in their heart was not genuine belief. We understood that to be superficial belief. Well, I came to this passage, and honestly, it's just like, okay, Lord, <laughs> what, are you, what are you trying to get across here? You, you ever read passages of Scripture where you're just like, okay, you know, I, I see what you're saying, but it's just very, very difficult, very, very confusing. Now, we need to step back and remember a couple of things, especially for those of you that may have been visiting or may are, vis are visiting, and, and for those of you who may not have been with us over the past number of months, um, we are in the process here of going through the Gospel of John, in particular, chapter 7, 8, and 9, um, Jesus is speaking in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. And in that context, he's identified himself as the bread from heaven, the bread of life. He's identified himself as the water that satisfies the woman at the well, as well as the ceremonies that are taking place there in the Feast of Tabernacles. He is the water of life. And then last week, remember, we, we saw him revealed as the light of the world, and ultimately the light that brings what? Brings life. And so all these themes, and these images are being used to help identify for us, the reader, who Jesus is. And all along the way, he's 
interacting with the Pharisees and the Jews, and they're, in particular the Pharisees are, are asking questions, are challenging him about who he is and what he is saying. And so we come to this passage, and once again, uh, we find that Jesus is coming to these, these Jews, and he's pressing them, he's, he's pushing them. And, and as, as the Holy Spirit pushed me into this text, uh, I really believe that what we have before us is an incredibly important passage of Scripture, much like that chapter chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, a passage of Scripture that is, in a sense, a, a warning text, a, a bold statement for we who are reading this. Remember, John is recording for us the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's giving evidence so that, that, uh, so that we would ultimately come to a place of belief which results in life, all right? That's John 20, 30, and 31. It's the theme of his book, fleshed out there. But we need to remind ourselves of something. I think this is what Jesus is getting at and ultimately what we need to hear. We are a stubborn people. Now we can look at this passage and say, those Pharisees, they were stubborn people. Look at their unbelief. Well, we could also look at the Jews and say, they're a stubborn people because they're not really believing. They're just kind of fickle and floating around because of all the miracles and things that Jesus is doing. But we need repeated warnings and revelations from him to bring conviction of sin, to keep us on the right path toward honoring him. Just because we've stepped by faith into the kingdom of God does not mean that we are no longer in need of warnings. Right? How many of you took a driver's test? All right. Does that mean that all the signs now on the road are unnecessary because now you've passed your test and you need no more warnings? Now, when we went to Bolivia, um, you, you, there were no signs, all right? And you had to kind of function without them. So the, the signs, you're coming back, it's like, oh, thank you for a sign, a stop sign, a, you know, a lights. They did have lights there, but people ignored them by and large, but just one of those things. But th those are there, signs are there as warnings. And oftentimes, we just kind of, they're just part of the, the fabric of the world, aren't they? And sometimes you get upset at them. You know, when, when you're driving down the street and it's like, you know, a warning, you know, slow down around this corner. How many people actually go the speed limit of that warning sign around the corner? Very, very few people. In fact, if there is someone going that speed, you're angry because you're behind them, right? That warning, though, is there for the purpose of protecting you. Because you already have your driver's license, I hope. You've been schooled, you have experience, and sometimes we get lazy and how we are actually exercising our gift of being able to drive. And we need those warning signs to protect us. Okay? But when you, when you drive down the end of a road and there's a cliff and there's this big, big barrier there, it's telling you what? Stop. It's probably not a bad thing to listen to the warning that is there. It's there for a reason. So we must be honest, guys, as we come to this passage, that this is, yes, this is a message that we see that John is recording about Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and the Jews, the crowds, but it is also a message that speaks to our condition, our heart, and our tendency toward unbelief, and we need that warning. We often take on religious forms of unbelief, and we don't think that we need again to face, uh, or, or, or we need again or to continue to, to stay in this position of, of, of receiving warnings and instructions from God, but friends, we, we need it. We need, again, to face the reality of the gospel and the claims of Jesus 
and ask ourselves if we are truly in the faith. My goal here is not to unsave anyone, it's not possible, but I think the goal here is to truly press down, number one, am I truly a genuine believer? Number two, if I am truly a genuine believer, am I functioning in unbelief? Because I think you can do that. Sadly, I think that is true. Now, as we, as we move on and thinking about this context, this passage and the greater context of this passage will answer some questions for us. Question number one, where does Jesus come from? He's already answered that, but he's continuing here to answer it. Where, does Je- where is Jesus going? Wh- who is the Father? Who is Jesus? These are constant questions that are being revealed for us as John unfolds his interaction um, that he, you know, he's eyewitness of with the, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees, with the crowds, and Jesus is speaking. So I want to caution you, uh, as we come to this passage, you might say to yourself, well, I know I'm a child of God, uh, this is talking about unbelievers, I really may, you know, don't need this necessarily, I'm attending church, and I give, and I read my Bible, and all that kind of stuff, be careful. The reason I say be careful is all scripture is given by inspiration of God. How much of scripture? All of it. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And the other thing is, as a pastor, I am committed by virtue of my responsibility before God to preach the whole counsel of God, which means everything that is there. It is all for us. The question is, what is all for us in this passage that we need, right? So when we come to a passage like this that seems a little tough, we, we must humble ourselves and say, God, speak to us as you will for for." for for your glory so that we can grow to be more like your son, Jesus Christ, if we are truly believers. If you're an unbeliever, or maybe you kind of think you're a believer because you've got certain forms, this is another warning passage to help you clarify that. Remember, Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. So be thankful. This is an opportunity to reaffirm some things. This is an opportunity to, to, to go over some familiar territory, to reinforce some things. But it's also possible that you and I have drifted. And so this morning, we want to we want to be pulled back onto the path as God would have us be pulled. So let's just pause right now and pray together, if you would, please. Lord, thank you for today, for this passage of Scripture, and Lord, for your gospel, Lord, that is revealed for us, Lord, in John's uh, good news, Lord, his record of your life and your interaction with others. Help us, Lord, to see what it is that you desire to teach us today. Allow me to be your messenger, and Lord, what we Know not, Lord, would you teach us what we have not, Lord, would you give us, Lord, what we are not, would you make us, Lord, according to your will, we ask this in your name, amen. I want to first of all talk about um, what I'm considering here, this, this idea of, again, these, these repetitions, uh, repeated warnings, and in this passage, uh, we do have these repeated warnings. If you would please look at verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Jump down now to verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, we have this, you will die in your sin and I understand that to be their unbelief. This is the real core of Uh, the problem with the Jews and the Pharisees that are listening to all that Jesus is saying. It's unbelief. The the only sin that will keep you out of heaven, all right, ultimately, is unbelief. You have to believe. 
You have to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and you have to believe in what he's accomplished on the cross, right? It's unbelief. But that unbelief then, once it has been expressed, once it is part of who you are, results and overflows in all sorts of activities and behaviors that flow out of that unbelief. And that's why the Pharisees and that's why the, the Jews in particular have attitudes toward Jesus, attitudes of anger, attitudes of hatred, attitudes of seeking to murder him and corruption and so on. It flows out of that unbelief. Now friends, let's just pause here for a minute. If, if these uh, recipients of Jesus' words do not listen to his warning that he is giving them repeatedly, they will die in their unbelief and in all the fog that mushrooms because of their sin of unbelief. It's not just true about them. The same is true about us. It's not just true about an unbeliever. It's also true about a believer who is living with an attitude or heart of unbelief toward God. Let me explain what I'm saying. It's possible for you and I to have embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, to, to recognize the gospel and all that it means in satisfying that, that problem between us and God, that we are sinful, he is holy, but Jesus Christ has, has reconciled us through the cross and in, in seeking forgiveness uh, based on what Jesus Christ has done, we have been reconciled. We're brought into his kingdom. We're part of his family. We're part of, of the body of Christ. But the problem is sometimes, although that may be true, in certain areas in our life, we function as if we don't believe in God. That's why we need to be people of faith. That's why we need to trust God. That's why throughout his words, speaking to Christians, he is challenging believers to exercise belief in what he says. So when we are faced with a passage of scripture that is challenging us to, to seek to live at peace with every, everyone, we must recognize that that is a command, and if it's a command, then it's possible, and for us to say, no, it's not possible, means what? We're not believing. And the result of not believing is that instead of doing what God wants us to do, we then shift gears, we use other methodologies, we use things like manipulation, we result in fear or envy or selfishness, all sorts of other sins now start to creep in because of our unbelief in what God has said. I mean, put it another way. At other times, God-loving uh, God and God-fearing parents will push aside instructions and guidelines for training up their children. Principles such as discipline, correction, boundaries, and submission. And it's a subtle form of unbelief that is often the result of worldly thinking and fear. And rather than believe God's word and, and trust God's word, they allow their children to rule the roost, to be disrespectful, to do what they want, so on and so forth. Now, friends, it's, these are all issues of belief or unbelief. It is is what I'm doing going to conform to what God has instructed, or is it going to be something that I've created um, as opposed to what God has instructed me to do? And oftentimes we want to somehow rationalize and justify those things, but ultimately it's rooted in unbelief. Okay? So what I'm trying to press home here, the point that I'm trying to press home here is this, that even God-loving, God-fearing people will struggle with unbelief. And all that unbelief will result in all sorts of chaos and multiplying of sin that will keep us in a fog 
of truly understanding God's compassion and purposes for our lives. When God commands something, when God tells us something, he knows that this is best for us. Now, we may have a hard time understanding it, but we must believe that what he says is true and seek then to do it, okay? Now, let's look first of all then at what I'm calling the warning stated. He states the warning here, verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. First of all, I am going away. This is talking ultimately about his ascension, but he is not ascending into heaven until he actually goes to a cross and then he's buried and then he rises again the third day and then he's ascended. So as then we get to the, you know, to the book of Acts, you know, he died, was buried, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven, and he's coming again. You kind of get, get all of those components, usually in the messages that, that Paul and Peter are preaching about in the book of Acts, these themes. You know, he went to the cross, he suffered, he died, he was buried, he rose again, he's coming again. These are all talking about Jesus' activity. So when he says, I'm going away, um, he's talking really about that dynamic. Secondly, you will seek me. Now, that's kind of, you scratch your head and say, well, if he's going away, how will they seek me because he's going to be gone? Ah, it's not specific that they will seek Jesus. The, the tense here is this, this continual seeking, and it's a genuine seeking. Jesus will go away. He'll go through the cross. He'll ascend up into heaven, and the Jews will still be seeking the Messiah. Are they not still seeking the Messiah today? Yes, they are but he's already gone, and that's what he's saying. I'm going away, and you will seek me, and as a result of that, you will die in your sin, in your sin of unbelief. This is the condition. This is the reality. This is the warning. It's a sad picture to have the Messiah, the Son of God, standing before you, proclaiming over and over again who he is and what he is coming to do only for them to say, no, I don't believe it. I'm not willing to believe it. I'm not even willing to look at the facts. It's a sad, sad reality because he has he's, you know, identified himself as the bread of life, the water of life, the, the light of the world and so on, but they will not respond. That's the warning stated. Now, the warning now is frustrated. Notice um, how they respond to what Jesus says. Turn your Bibles back to chapter 7 and verse 24. Um, this is, uh, the, our, our, in our text, it's not the first time that Jesus says, I'm going away. He says it in chapter 7, and I want you to notice how they respond there too. Verses 24 and 25 of chapter 7. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Of course, they're filling in the gaps now, right? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? So they're coming to a conclusion based on their blind understanding of what Jesus is saying. In this passage, however, he's, you know, they're not concluding we teach the, the Greeks. They're concluding in verse 22. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. So... Their, their blindness is, is on display, and I think there's some other things going on here, but it's, it's, it's frustrating because here, here's the evidence again 
you know, I'm going away, and you will still seek me, and you will die in your sin. Wow, is he going to kill himself? I mean, it's just like, right? I mean, whoa, are you even listening to what I'm saying here? They're not focusing on the warning part. They're focusing on Jesus saying, I'm going away. What about the, you will die in your sin part? Is that not important to you? Wow, you know, is he going to kill himself? Now, you have to understand, there is some pharisaical Jewish economy stuff going on here that they actually believe very strongly in life. And so for someone to commit suicide uh, meant that they would be going to a place of judgment. And of course, because they are the Pharisees, or maybe it might even broaden it to say they're the crowd, they're the Jews, certainly they're not going to be going to a place of judgment. They're God's chosen people. But he might be. So maybe that's the reason, you know, he, maybe he's going there, he's, he's going to kill himself, and that, that's why we're, you know, we're not going to be there. So it might be just kind of their own reasoning. Again, we'll get a little bit later. We'll come back to this. Um, the reality is, it was not Jesus that is heading for judgment. They are. And the reality is, Jesus isn't going to kill himself, but he is going to willfully and submissively be the sacrifice once for all for their benefit, not for selfish purposes. And of course, it's not sacrifice, but not suicide, but sacrifice. And John the Baptist has already come saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it's not like the sacrifice of Jesus has not been on display already. It's not like, you know, what John said wasn't heard around the kingdom. To be sure it was because people were flocking to him. And John was constantly about repent because the kingdom of heaven's drawing nigh, but also it was a message of preparing the way of the Lord. So here is, you know, this, this totality of, of information and data that these people were listening to and hearing along the way. Then the warning is illustrated. So Jesus, in his patience and his kindness and his graciousness, just kind of illustrates a little bit of what's going on. He said to them, verse 23, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. So let's just focus on Jesus first here. I am from above and am not of this world. He is from heaven and he's not from this world, okay? He's sent by the Father. He's sent to this world. Go back to uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then, verse 14, um, he came and he ultimately dwelled on this Word. He pitched his tent um, on this world. And there's you. You, the crowds, the Pharisees, are from below of this world. This is not a reference to hell. This is a reference to you know, the earth, to the world, the, the system of life that goes on here in this world. So there's this great chasm. I'm up here. You're down here. I come from heaven where I am with the Father, and I've been sent by him, I've been taught by him, and you are part of this fallen and rebellious world. And this, this is the world that he talks about in chapter 7, verse 7, that hates Jesus because he testifies that what it does is evil. Okay, So this is all part of the, the package and all part of the discussion that has taken place in the course of this time um, during this Feast of Tabernacles. I'm just trying to bring some of all this weight to bear in some of these statements. So when Jesus is speaking, remember, he's, he's repeating, and he's bringing stuff in that he's already said. He's, he's reminding them of these things. And the reason that they so desperately need to listen to Jesus' claims and see that he is teaching them about God, about being born again, and that he is the only way 
and the only truth and the only life. And then the, the warning is reiterated. So here we have it again. The warning stated one more time, verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, plural, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So there's really only one solution. There's only one answer. Hope can only be found in one action, and that is belief. Without true, genuine belief that Jesus is the Messiah, all of us will die in our sin. Now, friends, that's just foundational gospel truth. Without genuine belief that Jesus is the Messiah and what all that means, all of us will die in our sin. And to add to that, without genuine belief that having embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I should fully and completely trust him and obey his instructions, we will live our lives in chaos of our sin of unbelief and all the sins that are attached to that. Okay? So, big thrust here is this. Unbelief, if it is embraced, will result in all sorts of sins that are flowing out of that unbelief. Jesus comes and says, listen, I've given you evidence upon evidence upon evidence about who I am, what I'm here to do, but you do not believe. I'm from above, you're from the earth. And and you're not even listening to the message. You're in blindness. You're in darkness. You cannot see what's going on. So, not only is there repeated warning, secondly, there's repeated revealing. There's repeated revealing. Now, I'm, I'm laying the land here, and we'll kind of tie things up as we, as we move ahead. But just, just come along here as we're, we're picking up the data and putting it together. Verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Have they asked the question, who are you, before? Of course they have. He spent a whole time talking about, I am, you know, I am from God. I, and he identifying this deity and explaining who he is. He says, well, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I really don't have anything new to tell you. Although he does give us a few new things. But he doesn't, it's not like you need anything more. You don't need any more facts. You don't need any more proof. You have enough data there. You have enough evidence to look at to actually see who I am and to embrace me as the Son of God. But sadly, blindness cannot see in the darkness. It needs light to reveal what is true. And on the heels of a passage like I am the light of the world, this discussion is absolutely amazing. That was last week. That was the passage just prior to this. This flows one into the other. Okay? It needs light to reveal what is true. So as we read the rest of this passage, verse 26 through 29, I want you to notice how Jesus reveals himself, in particular his ministry of the word and then his ministry through his works. Okay? Just, we'll read it, and then we're actually going to flesh those out. Verse 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So let's focus our attention now on his, on his words. Who are you? Just what and who I have been telling you in particular, 
concerning his words now. Just, just from this passage, we can, we can seek to understand a little bit about what Jesus was actually teaching in the temple, in the wilderness, on the shores of Galilee, in the synagogues. He says in verse 26, I have much to say about you, right? I am, in verse 26, I declare to the world what I have heard from him. So he's saying, he's speaking, I'm declaring Okay, verse 28, I, I speak, I speak just as the Father taught me. So just like you see up there, I am he, I am the one you seek, I am the Son of Man. These are all things that he is saying. So here is how Jesus is ministering to the Jews when he teaches them. And we'll just kind of summarize these statements. He listens to the Father who teaches him, and as a result, he has much to say to the Jews and their religious leadership. Does Jesus have much to say to the Pharisees when he encounters the Pharisees? Absolutely. He's challenging them. You know, you say such and such, but I say this. He has much to say. He he, he challenges them over and over and over again based on things that they have distorted about the law and about their understanding of who God is and what his plan is. So here we have a glimpse into the relationship of the word in the beginning with God. There is there is discussion going on among the Godhead about what needs to be said. Did you get that? Because Jesus is listening to the Father. The Father is teaching him, and he is now on this earth, and he's communicating to those who are on his earth, the chosen people, a message for their benefit. He has much to say. This is certainly a reminder that the Godhead truly cares and is concerned for us. And I'm not exactly sure how it all works, but the Godhead, if this is true, is even right now seated in heaven, interacting over us, and has been interacting over us, over you, over the trial and the difficulty that you're going through, over the problem that you are facing or whatever it might be. The Godhead is already aware and at work and knowledgeable and interacting, and he wants to speak to you through his word by ministry of the Holy Spirit for your benefit right now. Now, I know you can't, you can't grab a hold of this. You can't take the reality of the Holy Spirit working through the ministry of preaching or teaching or, or the study of the word and, and put it in a bottle and say, oh, I need a little bit more, you know, and drink it down. But if we believe what God's word says, and as it's revealed to here, we have to understand that he is actively at work in our lives. And so the very fact that you're listening to this message is not about me. It's about God doing something through his messenger to you who are here listening to what he has to say through me and through his word. What is it? That's why. Let's step back a little. That's why. It doesn't matter who is actually up here teaching, obviously they need to be qualified and it's helpful if they're knowledgeable, but God will work through his messenger to get his message across. Even when the person is like, you know, they're, they're struggling and they, you know, they're really, really having a difficult time and they're not making their words and sometimes not making too much sense. That happens. It's happened to me plenty of times. But God still uses that. And so as a listener, you fight say, God, what is it that you want me to hear? What is it you are teaching me through this passage? It seems strange. It seems difficult. Or maybe you're like, oh, there's nothing here for me. Yes, there is. And be confident that he is at work because he is very aware of what's going on in your life. And not only concerning his words, but concerning his works 
his works. And just notice what he says here about his works. Um, I have much to judge, verse 26. Is that a work? Absolutely. I always do the things that are pleasing to him, verse 29. I am going away. Again, we talked about that being a picture of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, ultimately. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, hmm, the expression lifted up has a dual meaning. Let's just talk about that for a little bit. You can just read right through this. But there is, there is an Old Testament meaning here. First of all, it is, it is lifting up in crucifixion. The idea there is the actual act or event of the cross. There's also a lifting up as far as his exaltation and glorification. So Jesus is being glorified when he is being lifted up. He, Jesus himself uses that expression, lifted up in both ways, to talk about his crucifixion as well as his glorification um, and his exaltation. In fact, um, John 17, 1, you probably know it as, the, as the, the, the passage about his prayer. This is how he begins. When Jesus had spoken these words and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. What's he talking about there? Is he just talking about his ascension? No, he's talking about the work of the cross and ultimately going to be with his father. So both of those are true. There's a number of passages we could look at. But there's also a flashback here. As you're reading through the Gospels, in particular in John's Gospel, you, you see a little nuance, a statement. And there's a couple of statements in this passage. One of them is this. When you see the Son of Man lifted up, that, that should kind of trigger your, your thoughts about something in the Old Testament. It certainly would for those who are Jewish. You guys remember the story of the children of, of Israel in the wilderness and they're complaining and they're just, they're fussing at God. And so God just says, okay, you know what? I'm going to send some snakes to bite you. And a bunch of people die because of all these snakes. And then the people start crying and coming to God and say, God, you know, I'm so sorry. What are you going to do? And so Moses goes to God and he appeals to God and, and he says, listen, I want you to, to create a bronze serpent, and I want you to hold that serpent up, and anyone who then looks at that serpent will be healed. This is a flashback to that serpent being held, uh, held up. This is not the first time this is recorded. In fact, look at John chapter 3 and verse 14, if you would, please. I'm not making this up, okay? John chapter 3 and verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And who is the Son of Man? It's Jesus. He's identifying himself as that. So he's saying, I am this one who is lifted up in the midst of chaos, in the midst of unbelief, in the midst of complaining, in the midst of punishment and consequence for sin. I was lifted up, and I was the one who brought healing. Well, in the same way, in the same way, Jesus, when he hung on that cross, was lifted up. And those who put their faith and trust in the cross, in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross, will experience healing. Not physical healing, this is spiritual, eternal healing. We call it eternal life, which ultimately, John says, is abundant. Okay? This is who Jesus says that he is. So it's, it's that flashback to this particular passage of Scripture. So, so it will be when Jesus is lifted up that these things will be true. We will be cleansed. And this chasm between heaven and this world is bridged because of who Jesus is. So when Jesus talks about 
I'm not of this world, you are of this world. What's he identifying? He's identifying this chasm. And when he identifies himself in these ways, he's saying, but I'm also the solution to bringing you to the place where you're reconciled to God. Now, I want you to notice now how this passage ends. A repeated believing. The reader of John's gospel can easily be left wondering, will anyone truly listen to the words of Jesus? Will anyone truly believe what he says so that they will have life? Will anyone truly consider the overabundance of evidence and as a result fall on their face in repentance and belief, confessing sin, crying out for Jesus to be their sacrifice, Savior, and sovereign Lord. Will anyone do that? And then we read a verse like this, verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now again, you could just go right into this passage and say, oh, everyone believed. This is great. All these people believing in Jesus. But on the heels of that statement is John 2, 23 through 25. Let's just turn there. I referred to it earlier. John 2, 23 through 25. There's a tension then. We've got to wrestle with this tension. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, verse 23 of John chapter 2, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, and when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, as we talk about back then, this, this would be a great preaching message. Many believed when they saw the signs. Isn't it great? Oh, man, yeah, all the signs that Jesus, well, you should have signs now, and then people will believe, right? That's where it could go. You've got to read on, but... Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, Jesus was saying, there is a belief of sorts going on here, but it is not saving belief. It is not genuine belief. And so there's this tension as we go through John's gospel to, to question, is this genuine belief? When we come to this passage, is the belief that's being talked about here a genuine belief? And we're not given answers. And remember, this is a gospel. This is a story. This is a revelation of who Jesus is and his life and his message. And we have many chapters yet to read. And the evidence is reinforced and reinforced and reinforced for the reader, all throughout this gospel. And so as Jesus is being revealed, we're told all sorts of things about who he is. Remember chapter 1 and all the different descriptions that we have of who he is? And as we, as we go on, we learn more about what he does and all these connections to festivals and things that happen. Uh, and Jesus, is, you know, he's, he's the... Um, He's the one that, is, you know, that allows us to be born again. If you remember, he was that water uh, that, that satisfied man. He was that new wine. And all, this, all these, these images are there, all just giving us evidence after evidence about who he is. And we can still have all that and still not truly, truly believe. Or we can actually think that we believe because we're recognizing, oh, yeah, that's, that's good, that's good, that's good. And somehow have religious forms and still not truly believe. And friends, that's why I, I go back to the beginning of our of our time uh, this morning and say, you know what, I did not believe in the gospel the first time I heard it. And it wasn't for me months. For me, it was years growing up in a Christian environment. And sometimes we've got to be careful. We're not too quick, in particular, with our children to say, aha, you know, they, dis they knelt down. Wow. Woo, man, amen. Praise the Lord. They knelt down and, and they said something to God that must be genuine belief. So hold on a second. 
Let it prove itself. Let it show itself. Let it reveal itself. Now, we're all sinful creatures, but is there a genuine directional heart toward the gospel and toward the things of God that's evident in the life of that child, in the life of that believer, in the life of that person, all right? Those are the questions we need to be asking ourselves. Now, when we say that we are believers or followers, what do we actually mean? Is it simply a cultural assent to a set of spiritual principles that will help us get through life but are really unattached to walking with Christ? And friends, there are many places called a church where the people affirm themselves to a set of principles, and it's a cultural set of principles, and we all embrace those principles, and we're all living happily together, but it's not genuine belief. It's a cultural kind of club of sorts, but it's not the true church, and it's not genuine belief. Is it a guilt trip kind of belief that simply is getting the pressure of family off my back or, or friends or society or, or maybe even in a relationship where it's like, you know, I, you know, I'll say I'm a believer just so I can get married to this person or whatever it might be. That's not genuine belief at all. The question is, is there something genuine about you looking at the facts of the gospel and saying, I am in desperate, total desperate need. I am helpless and hopeless without what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for my sin. And friends, we, we need to be reminded of that for a number of reasons. One, to, just to be encouraged, to be challenged, to once again see the beauty and the, the magnitude of what salvation really is. This is a, a serious thing. And friends, one of the best ways that I can love you as a pastor is to walk you through the warnings in scripture and not avoid them if they're there to say here's the warning and to trust i have to trust that god has that in the passage for our benefit if you are truly a believer it benefits you if you're not a believer it benefits you if you think that you're a believer but you're not a believer it benefits you and i have to trust that the holy spirit works in that to fashion to shape you in your thinking and your confidence and your view of god so that you don't walk away with some more fuzziness that things are clearer, and maybe, maybe some things are so clear that you realize, you know what, I thought I was a believer, but I've come face to face with the reality that I wasn't. And there are people with that kind of testimony in this room here today who at part of their life would have said, yeah, and pretty confidently said, yeah, I'm a believer, but it was very clear that they're not, at least at that point in time. Now, question for us then is this. What is it that this text is calling us to believe specifically? And I would say this is where the fun begins, okay? This is where we begin to see Jesus on display. <clears throat> First of all, we must believe, and this is what he's revealing to them, we, we must believe or we should recognize that Jesus is the I am he of Isaiah chapter 40. 55. Now, that, that may be a section of scripture you have not studied. Um, it is the passage about the suffering servant. You're familiar with Isaiah 53, right? Now, that's just a description of what, what's taking place with this Messiah and the sufferings and, and how he kept his mouth closed and how he went to a cross and just all the effect of all that in the Old Testament. But what we have in these passages are some expressions of God talking about what he's doing in his son, but then identifying himself as or with the son by saying, I am he. 
So, if you have your Bibles, let's just walk through a few of these verses. Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 4. Again, this is God speaking now through the prophet Isaiah. And here's what he says. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last. I am he. I'm the one who's done it. Now look at chapter 43 and verse 10 and following. Chapter 43. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that what? I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? There's that expression again. I am he. I am he. I am he. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 48 and verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first, and I am the last. Now, who is called the first and the last in the New Testament? Jesus. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. This is a passage here, this section is talking about the suffering servant. This is a passage talking about the servant of the Lord. It's talking about Jesus who would be that that Messiah for the people. He's saying, I am he. And Jesus then now, as he's speaking to these Jews, is also saying to them, I am he. It's a number of times in this passage. I want you to know that I am he. Carefully chosen words. Now you could say, if you come to this passage, that I am. Okay? That would be turning to a whole other set of statements. But here we have the Isaiah statements. I am he is really what's going on here. So we have revealed, just in this passage, it seems kind of rough what's going on here. This declaration a couple of times, I am he, I am he, taking us back to the Old Testament, reminding us of who Jesus is as the, as the Messiah. Secondly, he is the son of man. We find this in our passage, don't we? Um, let's see, let's go back to, yeah. Wait, no. So when you have lifted up, this is verse 28, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. Get the connection there, okay? So. As we, as we think about the Son of Man, I want you now to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1 and verse 51. John chapter 1 and verse 51. Now again, as we studied that passage, we were reminded of this, this reality, and there's a picture here of heaven and of earth and of some, some means by which we are distant from God because of 
who he is, and it is the Son of Man that ultimately is the one that bridges that gap. John chapter 1, and the last verse says, And he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The idea there is that Jesus is this mediator between God and earth, God and man. So, I mean, I know it's a title, and you can just kind of breeze by it, but the point here is this is in chapter 1, and now we're in chapter 8. And here we have it reinforced once again, this, this expression, son of man, along with other ones. Again, another reminder of Jesus' self-declaration for our benefit so that we would actually hear and that we would actually embrace who he is and what he has done. He's also the Messiah, just taking some of these themes together. This is clearly an identification of him as the Messiah. He's also the one who is being lifted up, which of course is referring to then him going to the cross, and then Jesus then also is one who is going away. He has already gone away. He's already ascended into heaven, having gone through the cross. Then at the end of our passage, we're told here that he is always pleasing the Father. Now listen, I would hope that all of us would say that our desire, our goal is to please the Father, right? And even mature believers, maybe they, they please the Father with a lot of the things that they're doing, but none of us, none of us in this room can say, like Jesus does, I always please the Father. He does. Always. Without fail. Without question. We're also instructed that we must believe and he says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he says, then you will know. Now, after Jesus hung on the cross, what happened? Did people come to faith in him? Many people did. Not everyone, but many people. And yeah, now he's now speaking to the crowd. He's speaking to the Jews. Were there many that came to Jesus on Pente at Pentecost? Absolutely. Why? Because they reminded themselves because of what Peter said in his message that what happened on the cross was something that was prepared and part of God's ongoing plan. And Peter lays that all out for them. And then people connect the dots. Aha, this is actually what Jesus came to do. So all this is happening so that you will know. And ultimately, friends, believing that he is the Messiah and has been lifted up, without that, we will not be able to come to him. Now friends, it's just powerful that in this, this short little section where it just seems like, you know, like the, the, there's kind of this quibbling and reminder and repetitive stuff going on that we have once again these wonderful, beautiful images about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. But it's all attached to this warning. Unless you what? Believe. You're still in your sin. Unless you believe you're still in your sins. Let's finish up with, with three, I think, outflowing applications from this whole text. We need to be reminded about a couple of things. Number one, we live in the context of unbelief and opposition. Do we not? Just like Jesus speaking 
about himself, giving evidence, giving proof. We're living in the context of op opposition and unbelief. People oftentimes do not want to listen to the gospel. They don't want to mess with the facts. They're perfectly fine being in their sin. In fact, we're told Jesus came to his own and his own what? Did not receive him. There are those who will remain in the blindness of the darkness that they're in. And that is true of our culture today. We live in that kind of context. In Jesus' situation, they wanted to arrest him. They wanted to trap him. If that story of the woman caught in adultery, they wanted to discredit his testimony. That's what we looked at last week. They wanted to now scorn and ridicule him. And I, I think, as I have also read and, and kind of gleaned from other resources and other people that are coming to this passage, there's something about the questions in this text that are almost scorn and ridicule. Now, it was hard for, it's hard to kind of read the tone into this text of Scripture, but just, just think about this. When they say early on, this is not in the section we've just cited, but verse 19, after he's just declared that he interacts with the Father and he doesn't do anything without the Father's direction and stuff, and they say, well, in verse 19, where is your Father? And just you know, think of that in a scornful way. They've tried all these different ways to discredit him, and now... We're going to ask him some really scornful questions. Verse 22, will he kill himself? What's he going to do? I mean, is he going to kill himself? I mean, really? Is that what he's going to do? Or, who are you? And the reason I say this is because this is not the first time these questions have been asked. There's almost just kind of this tone that's going on here. There, there's, there's a tone in the culture in which we live that we will come face to face with. Is there not? And so questions will, will be said in kind of, a, kind of a snickery, sneery kind of way to kind of belittle and make fun of you so that you will retreat and feel like, well, maybe it's not that important and good news and I shouldn't share it. And but friends, the very thing they need is the truth of the gospel. So we must expect it, we must live with it, and we must not be shocked by it. That's why we're told to always be ready to give an answer of the hope that is in you. You know, we may be belittled because in, other, in, in, in the world of unbelief, our affirmation and our assent and our following Jesus to them seems like foolishness. And like you're just kind of walking in this kind of fairy tale cloud. Come on, get real. Life isn't like that. But we know with a certainty that that is true. Now, the only way that, that that can change is the gospel penetrating their heart. And, and it's going to be this way to the end. So we must be read, ready to recognize that we are going to continue to live in this context of unbelief and opposition. We will, we will never create a utopia Christian culture. I know the pilgrims came to the States, and they were religious, and they had a kind of a Christian thing going on there, but America is not the land where only God resides, right? Now, I believe strongly. I want God to be a part of what we're doing, but, but it's not like you know, our borders are like the section of, of protection where God actually really lives because this is God's country, right? 
Um, no, he has his own kingdom, and we are, fortunately, if we're his children, citizens of that kingdom. But we're living here according to his purposes as ambassadors. All right? So we need to be reminded of that. Secondly, we need to be reminded about our unbelief and its rippling effects. We talked about this, but friends, here, if you do not know Christ, if you have had the evidence of, of who he is and what he has done, and it's been preached, it's been taught, it's been put at you over and over and over again, and you're still fighting it off for whatever reason, your unbelief will result in further attitudes and behaviors and unbelief that will create a mire of fog and part of the reason you may be going through all the kind of struggle and, and, and difficulty you're going through is because you will not believe, and because you will not believe, you're trying to create this religious quagmire that you think will be enough for people to think that I'm actually a child of God when you're not. I just want to plead with you. Believe. Don't. Don't just brush it aside. Don't push it away. That's what I did. I remember it. I remember the gospel coming and, and, and just kind of pushing on me and pushing on me and saying, no, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And there are all sorts of different reasons why. But then that day came when it was just so clear. It's like the arrow, boom, into my heart. It's like, man, you know what? I, I have to do this, and I want to do this. And by God's grace, I'm now his child. But there's this, there's this resistance oftentimes that is present. I just want to challenge you and encourage you. Please, please be careful with that. But secondly, to we who are God's children, to we who know him as our Lord and Savior, it is possible for us, as we established earlier, to live our lives in a state of unbelief in particular areas. That my circumstance is so difficult, God. I don't know how in the world you can make anything beautiful out of this. I know I have salvation. I know in the end, when I get to heaven, it will be wonderful. It will be peaceful. I'll have all the, the promises that you've, you've uh, promised me you know, in, in my life that are yet to come. But now, it's chaotic. It's a mess. And Lord, how can you make any sense of this, Lord? There's, I, just, I, I don't know that I can trust you in this. We don't verbally say those things. Those are usually things that are bouncing around in our heart and someone says, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. But inside, you're not doing fine. In fact, inside, you're fighting with God. And because you're fighting with God, you're exercising unbelief. And humble yourself before him. So, I mean, just here are just a couple of, of, of ways, just some pictures to enter in here. Not think of anyone in particular, please. Struggling in your marriage, it, it's due you think, to your spouse, but maybe it isn't due to your spouse. Maybe it's due to your unwillingness to believe what God says about forgiveness and reconciliation, that you're not willing to actually come before your spouse and seek reconciliation. You're not trusting God in belief because of what you have been doing, and so you kind of are still in this, this area of squabble and difficulty, and that just results in more difficulty and sin being on display. Or maybe you have difficulty letting go of some kind of past bitterness. It may be a, a former church. It may be a former friend. It may be a job that you once had. It may be a boss that you had. And you, you, you won't submit to the fact that even though it was bad, it was not a good experience, or maybe there was sin there, that even God had you walk through that for a purpose, for his glory, for his benefit, so that you could grow, so that you could be changed, and that he can accomplish what he wants to accomplish in you. 
you know, we just want to kind of, you know, tiptoe through life and just enjoy it and say, isn't this great, it's wonderful, and, and yet that's not how God strengthens us. My son Gavin's, you know, down at boot camp for the Marines. I don't think it's like, oh, I just want to wear that nice uniform. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, I'd be walking around with <laughs> fatigues on. It'd be wonderful. No, you have to go through all the training and all the difficulty and all the struggle so that you could be proved that you are, you are developing and growing, and God does that with us. Trial and, and struggle is all part of our growth toward Christ-likeness. And so if we, if we look at it afresh, we say, okay, God, it's chaotic, it's a mess, this is hard, this news is difficult, but if this is true, you are a great God, and you are working your will through that for your glory and for my benefit, and I'm going to trust you. We need to be reminded of our unbelief. And finally, we need to be reminded of our fleeting opportunity to embrace the fullness of the gospel. Well, I kind of touched on that already. If you've ever flown on a plane, one of the things that you were, you're often... Um, offered is an exit seat. Anyone here ever sat in an exit seat on a plane before? If you sit in an exit seat, they ask you if you're willing to perform all the duties of sitting in an exit seat. And so the stewardess comes down and says, sir, are you willing to do this? You say, yeah, do you know what to do? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, like, you know, what am I supposed to say? No, I'm a wimp. I couldn't do it. You know, I'm not strong enough. I mean, I mean, really, at that point in time, it's a little too late, right? Everyone's around you listening to the conversation. Well, sure, yeah, I, I can do it, right? And, and, you know, but you, could, you can do that and say, yeah, but, you know, I'm just going to wait until it happens before I figure out what I need to do. I think that's oftentimes what, oh, I pick up the little thing, yeah, I figure it out, yeah, I'm supposed to open the door and kind of shift, you know. But they, they never actually say, okay, all those in the exit seats need to go out for some training. That might shake you up a little bit, right, if you did that. But sometimes that's how we approach even the things of God. Do we want to simply wait until the happens before we try and figure out what God wants us to do? Or do we take the warning seriously? Do we listen to what God says and say, okay, you're speaking to me, you're challenging me, you're wanting me to hear, you're wanting me to embrace it. Lord, give me the wisdom and the strength to take it, to own it, to absorb it, and to be honest with you because of what you're saying here. It is God's goodness, it is his graciousness to come at us again and again and again with the seriousness of the gospel. Friends, we need it. And so we should enjoy it and be thankful for it. Because it is the means by which we grow in our understanding of him and our understanding of what he's called us to do. Lord, help us today to contemplate, Lord, the kind of challenge that you are driving at in our hearts, Lord. Are we, are we people who are exercising unbelief? While we may be believers, we've embraced you as Lord and Savior, but we're living our lives as if you do not exist, as if what you say is irrelevant, as if what you, what you say is really not the best solution. Lord, help us to fight against unbelief in you and, Lord, to turn to you again and to listen to your instructions again and, Lord, to be reminded again and again and again so that, Lord, we're confident that what you say is truly what you say and that we understand what you say so that we can live in a way, Lord, that truly would please you. And, Lord, we're not always going to please you. We know that. 
But we also know, Lord, that as your children, you are a gracious and loving God, and you forgive us, and you restore our relationship with you. But, Lord, you continue to want us to come and exercise belief in you. And, Lord, if there's a particular area that you've identified by virtue of your Holy Spirit this morning, I ask, Lord, that you give boldness to your children, Lord, to to do something about that, Lord, to act on it. Secondly, Lord, we come to you today knowing that in our presence there may be some who have the forms of godliness and truly maybe think they are born again or have somehow um, fooled themselves into thinking they are by, by virtue of the things that they're doing when there really truly is not genuine belief. Lord, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would, would, would light a match in that person's heart today, Lord. And they would stop resisting and stop fighting and, Lord, truly come to you afresh, embracing the gospel and having, Lord, the experience of new life in you, life that is abundant, life that is full, life that comes because of your cross. Help us today, Lord, with the things that we've learned to now glorify you with them, we ask in your name.